Welcome back to Writers on Writing. I'm your host, Marie Stone. Kelly McMasters is an essayist, professor, and former bookshop owner. She is the co-editor of Wanting, Women Writing About Desire, and the anthology This is the Place, Women Writing About Home. Her first book, Welcome to Shirley, a memoir from an atomic town, was listed as one of Oprah's top five summer memoirs and is the basis for the documentary film The Atomic States of America, which was a 2012 Sundance selection. Her essays, reviews, and articles have appeared all over the place, but the New York Times, the Washington Post Magazine, the Paris Review, Tin House, elsewhere. She holds an MFA in nonfiction writing from Columbia's School of the Arts and is the recipient of a Pushcart nomination and an Orion Book Award nomination. Kelly has spoken about creative nonfiction at TEDx and elsewhere. She has taught at Franklin and Marshall College and is the undergraduate writing program journalist graduate school at Columbia University. She is currently an associate professor of English and director of publishing studies at Hofstra University in New York. Today, we're talking about her latest, The Leaving Season, a memoir and essays. And in that context, we'll talk about the essay form and memoirs and what makes them successful. We'll chat about the role of memory in memoir, about metaphor and symbolism in essays, about rendering place and other crafty topics. We'll dissect a few of these essays. We'll also talk about the business of writing and what it takes to be a working writer today and much more. Once again, a quick reminder to visit our Patreon page. Up there, we have special tips and perks to our patrons. Kelly McMasters is up there sharing some of her favorite writing exercises for writers. So hopefully the show has boosted your writing in some way and given you some useful advice. If so, look for us there. You can see all the benefits by visiting patreon.com slash writers on writing. We also invite you to leave a review of our show on Apple or wherever, however you consume your podcasts. That brings new listeners to the show and helps us out too. All right, on with the show. Kelly McMasters, welcome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I'm very excited to be here. I wanted to start by saying, before we dive into the the sort of meat and intricacies of the book, that there's this little game you introduce in one of these essays. I think it's the essay about owning a bookstore, which we'll definitely talk about. But the idea is that you flip open a book and with your eyes closed, you point to somewhere on a random page and you sort of let the passage inform you or tell you something. So I played the game with this book. And here's what I got, which feels like just a nice way to open the conversation. Those who contemplate the beauty of the earth find reserves of strength that will endure as long as life lasts. Um, and that actually is you quoting another essayist from, from an essay called The Sense of Wonder. And we can talk about that essay too. But I love that line. And I love that I landed on that line. It just felt like a nice place to to start our talk. That is so perfect. And that is why this game is amazing. Um, I I love playing that game. And I love that you played it with this book. Uh, that's Rachel Carson, actually, one of my North Star writers, nonfiction writers. And that line was a North Star for this book. So I think it's really perfect for this conversation. Yeah, me too. So maybe we start with you just talking 
about this memoir in essays as a form. I love this form. And I haven't read a lot in this kind of genre. I mean, I've read a lot of memoirs and I've read a lot of essays, but I love this combination. And I was just wondering if you can kind of talk about what it can do, what it can't do, sort of the perils and pleasures of working in this form. That's probably something I can attempt to answer, although most of it will come out as envy. (laughs) This was not, although it may seem it was, it's not necessarily a choice. I think my natural writing rhythm is the essay form. And I sort of think in essay form, whether micro or macro. And I think we'll talk about that a little bit later about the difference, flash or longer form. And I read everything. I read novels. I read memoir. I read short stories, poetry, everything. So I wish that I could write everything, but my natural form seems to be essay. And luckily I adore it. I you know, grew up in a house where there were books for sure. And there was a kind of halo around academia, mostly because it wasn't something much of my family experienced. It was aspirational. I was the first in my family to go to college, but my parents were so curious, really roving curiosity about the world, about everything. And so we had a lot of books, but I did not really understand, even in college, I, I, never took an English class undergrad. I didn't understand even that there was nonfiction as opposed to fiction. <laughs> it was all, and I, I actually, this is something I see a lot, not just in my students today, but in adults where people will refer to any book, including this one as a novel, right? A novel just means uh, something creative. And it was only early in my twenties that, uh, well, the first real writer I saw in real life was in college And Terry Tempest Williams came to speak to our class about refuge. And that book has remained totemic for me. It was such a pleasure to include one of her pieces in an anthology a few years ago and work with her. That book, it turns out when I revisited it later on in graduate school, was so different than I remembered. I remembered reading it and just wanting to know what, what it was, because it was something I had not, you know, I came from Stephen King and novels and Christopher Pike and that type of stuff. I worked at the library. I loved books. I read voraciously classics, you know, things like that. And here's this book that's true is mixing nature and science some chapters are a page, some chapters are 20 pages. I didn't understand. It was all just exciting. And so that led me through a sort of rabbit hole that ultimately had me arrive around, you know, the sort of Joan Didion, Virginia Woolf kind of essays. And I just knew that I'd found my literary home. Yeah, I was thinking about this because I'm such a lover of the short story form, and I I really love novels and short stories like Olive Kittredge and whatnot. And as I was reading this, I was thinking about that. I was thinking about the relationship, like, is memoir and essay the same as novel and short stories? And in some ways, I thought, yes, we could talk about some of the differences. But but I was wondering if you thought along those lines as well, because not a collection of essays does a memoir make, right? I mean, they have to jive along certain themes. They come at certain themes in different ways. Tell me a little bit 
about that if you ever drew kind of that parallel between the novel in in short stories and the the uh, memoir and essays absolutely i think maybe the closest kin would be linked stories i know that that feels probably the closest to a memoir and essays but i think you're right in the parallel and i have you know a lot of fiction writer friends who seem to identify themselves as one or the other or even if they do both they feel like they are actually a short story writer who also writes novels or a novelist who sometimes writes short stories, right? I have somebody, a friend of mine, who's a very serious uh, hair colorist. And she said, you know, you want to go to two different people for your hair because there are hair colorists and there are hair cutters. And there are, <laughs> yes. you know, they're very specialized once you get into it. And I think that's a good example from the outside where somebody might not, well, it's all hair, right? It's it's just the same. You're still working with one canvas, but, but I think writers, when you, when you get to that canvas, it's, it's the difference between, you know, a 12 by 12 and getting an entire story in that 12 by 12 or a giant wall sized nine by nine canvas where nine feet by nine feet, where you're, you're getting a world, you can fit in a universe. And I think for me, the difference is maybe, and I'm not saying this is for all essayists or all essays, but for me, when I approach the essay form, as opposed to long form nonfiction, I enjoy it because it allows me to tinker in a way that I imagine if you lift the hood of a car, and I'm not a car person, so I'm hoping this is going to work. If you lift the hood of a car and you you look at all of the different things that make it go, an, a memoir and essays is like, okay, now we're going to go into this little strange gear shift circular thing and interrogate this and look above it and under it and inside it. And now, then we're going to come back out and go into this tube over here. What does this do? What goes in here? And then come back out of it and then go back into it. And I think the essay form allows for a different type of layering, which to me felt very natural when thinking about the concept of leaving, the concept of marriage, really. And the idea that as you leave things, you're leaving behind these ghosts that will follow you throughout, but nothing ever goes away entirely. And so I feel like a, a novel or a memoir, you're on the other side and you're in the driver's seat and you're just turning the key and making it all run at once. Does that make sense? Yes. <laughs> I love that you speak in such wonderful analogies and, and symbols because that, that's exactly what these essays did. And it's, it's fun to listen to you talk the way you write, which is, yes, why don't you... Let's look at this analogy. Yeah, the only other note that I would add to that in the difference between the essay and the short story is that short stories always end so a little bit ambiguously, right? Like you're left with a feeling, but you don't quite know what happened. You, I feel like you can't really do that in essays, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but essays feel like you need to have some understanding of what happened non-fictionally. In an, like, I feel like these sort of you know, we're self-contained worlds. And I understood what happened by the end. Like it landed on a very solid note where short stories and on sort of a ethereal <laughs> note, if that makes sense. It does. Yes. And I agree completely. I think my first book was a, a book of essays in disguise. I remember when I, when I worked on it, you know, I approached each chapter very individually 
And it was a very different type of book, much more reported and environmental science. Um, And the one main note that my agent, who's an amazing critic of both nonfiction and particularly fiction, she cut her teeth on selling short stories and and novels. And I was her first nonfiction client. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember she said, after she read the first draft, she said, when you get to the end of these chapters, you close each chapter. And I think you need to read some novels and and watch the way that novelists connect the last sentence and use that empty space on the page between the last sentence of one chapter and the next sentence, the opening sentence of the next, Mm. and just to propel you forward. And I think It's because you're exactly right. What I was doing is, and not that everything is answered, you know, usually you arrive at a different question, but it feels complete. It's, it's in it's, it's orb, right? That part of the car is doing its one job and then you move on to the next thing. And I think you're very right that um, in short stories, it's more ephemeral. I'm thinking of Lee Newman's book that just came out. And that I think is linked because it's Alaska, right? And the here and there, you'll see hints and shades of, of characters who are who are in each other's orbit and her openings. Oh my gosh. But her endings do exactly what you, what you're describing. And I think she's a master at short stories. So yes, I hadn't thought about it before, but I definitely agree with that. Well, this is a good chance for you to introduce the book in the collection in general and uh, yeah, kind of take us into the leaving season. And I forgot to count up how many essays there are there like 15 or something. How many are there? Yeah, we ended with 19. 19. I, I wanted a round number, but it just, I couldn't make that happen. We wound up adding, cutting. It was a really interesting process and 19 just is where it was. Yeah. So take us into a sort of how these coagulated together as a memoir and sure. what was on your mind. We'll uh, introduce it from here. Sure. So I would say the heart of the book itself physically and the heart of the project was certainly the bookshop essay. Uh, in here, it's called The Bookshop, A Love Story. And it's an essay on its own, uh, re- reformed, but the The origin of that particular essay was a series that I wrote for the Paris Review Daily uh, when Sadie Stein was there. And I had opened this sort of rural experiment. Uh, I was in the middle of rural Pennsylvania and really missing the literary life. And, uh, you know, I had a baby and a toddler and this sort of falling down farmhouse and a questionable marriage. And it felt like something I could, you know, a last ditch attempt at making a life. And I think that for me also meant community and the bookshop essays came out of, I don't know if I, I think this might be the first time I'm telling this story. I hope so. But my, again, my agent and I were talking about the bookshop and I had this idea. I'm in love with the American scholar. They're so fantastic. And I've written for them a few times. I've been lucky enough to write for them. And uh, they have so many great columns. And they had a call for columns. And so I said to my agent, maybe I can write about owning a bookshop. Maybe the American scholar would appreciate that. They were looking for 
a column on books specifically, not a bookshop. So it wasn't exactly that, but I had sent this note to her just for her feedback. And she said, give me 24 hours before you pitch that. And I said, oh, okay. And she wound up pitching it to the Paris Review and they bit and said, let's, what do you want to call it? <laughs> said, okay, <laughs> we'll call it, I guess we will just go through and, and call it, you know, it's, it's an ode to owning a bookshop, but it's, it's an ode to the life of books, I think is the best way to describe mm-hmm. that. And so it's, it's called notes from a bookshop and because it was in rural Pennsylvania and because one of the important things was every book that we sold, we gave a book away. I wanted to raise my kids in a town that had a bookshop because that was not my experience. And so it was very important to me that it was not, even though it was going to be in the Paris Review, that this column itself was not precious. I wanted it to be a very kind of common reader type column. And that's where the notes idea came from, that this is just a kind of experiment along with the bookshop that we're going to try and you're going to come along for the ride as a reader. And so every month I would write this column and it was life-changing because I'm really happy to be having all of these conversations now, but at the time I was not, and it felt very lonely to be a mom of two little kids who was struggling to find not just time to write, but permission for myself as well as other people and space, both mental space and physical space. And so the beauty of a rural bookshop is that a busy day, like a busy Wednesday might have five people (laughs) come in. (laughs) And (laughs) so one of the best things about it was it was a dollar a square foot. So we had 250 square feet. It was $250 a month. And so we could afford to have five people come in on a Wednesday and only one person buy something. That was okay. And the beauty of it was that on those quiet days, I could use, just use it as an office. And once I had the assignment from the Paris Review that I had a deadline, there was not much. It was, I think, maybe even $125 a column or something like that, but it was money. And I felt like I could claim space that I was working. And that was something that was missing for me before that I didn't realize was very important in the way that I'm able to give myself that space. And so the column ran for about a year. And when it was clear that the bookshop had to close, I couldn't write the final column. I was so heartbroken. I couldn't even write it down that it was going to happen. And I kept planning on it and kept planning on it. And it just never did coalesce. And so it was a project that I always felt was unfinished. And afterwards, I was surprised by how many people said they missed it. Some people approached me to collect the columns into a book. And I thought about it. And that didn't feel quite right either. And then a few years later, when I was turning my attention and thinking about some of the essays that were crossing similar territory, the country in particular, I wanted to to dive back into that essay in particular. And it turned out that that was a real turning point, not only for this book, but for my life. That is really where the book began. Yeah, that office, that concept of, of sort of this room of your own 
that was also a public space that anybody could walk into mm-hmm. that a woman sort of walked into and became kind of your therapist. Oh my goodness. That the other thing, and I, I don't think it's only the size of the bookshop because it did take on the air of a confessional. So many people would come in and want to share secrets and whisper things. And I think bookshops still function like that, regardless of their size, but there are proposals that happen in bookshops. It's it's this place of magic for people. And for me, that's exactly the scene that you're describing. What happened was a friend came in right as, as, as I was closing up for the day and I could see it in her face that she needed to, to say something. And I just assumed it was something she needed to confess to me and that I would take it in and then I could close up shop and go on with my day. But what it turned out was that she, she really took a chance and we are still dear friends today, but she took a chance on our friendship. It's one of the bravest things that anyone has ever done. And she just let me know that she saw what was happening in my marriage And she wanted to let me know that I could leave because she wasn't sure if I knew that or not. And she was completely right that I did not actually know that. And it opened a door that was just transformational and changed everything that came after that. Such a great moment in the book. Yeah, we should say, so the book is divided roughly into sort of three sections. And before those sections start, there are a couple of essays that open the book. And I really love that you opened it with this essay called Home Fires, which is just so loaded as all of these essays are so loaded. But it kind of starts at the end. And then we whipsaw back to the next essay, which really starts at the very beginning. And those two bookends and the last bookend comes before the first one. And then we kind of get into the three sections I thought was really elegant and kind of set the time frame, the span of the book, which is sort of your your adult life. And I was wondering if you could talk about that structure a little bit and organizing the book, because I know these essays had to be very carefully placed. They don't they, <laughs> their placement is not random. So tell me a little bit about that. Sure. And and thanks for noticing that. It it's the sort of thing that I both And I, you know, in talking with my editor, we both want the reader to feel, but also not pay too much attention to at the same time, hopefully. Right. Um, But the, the organization is extremely important and we spent a lot of time on that. I think that opening, the opening essay, Home Fires, was one of the very last essays I ended up writing. There was another essay there entirely because at the beginning of the writing process, I thought I was writing a book that would open and pretty much move along a similar course, but end in the Arctic mm-hmm. <laughs> That's, um, instead of the suburbs. And pre-COVID, when I was working on trying to place this book, I was doing a lot of traveling in the Arctic and um, and. Norway and Svalbard and and really working on a, you know, thinking a lot about a project there. And I had just been given a Fulbright to teach in Norway and had planned to use that as a, a launch pad to really use that year to research for the end of this book. And I did wind up writing 
one piece for the New York Times about Svalbard where, you know, sort of, if you can imagine the, the reason that would fit in, in my mind is if you've ever stood on a glacier and if you've ever been in the middle of a divorce, they are the same thing. <laughs> and yeah. so just this immensity. So for two reasons, one, even before COVID happened and crashed all of those plans, my editor said, I, I'm not sure that this book goes to the Arctic. And when we were in conversation about the book, she happened to ask where I was living now. And I kind of rolled my eyes and said, oh, Long Island. <laughs> I ended up in the one place that I swore I would never return to. And I'm very annoyed about it. And I don't want to talk about it. And later on, she she kind of poked and prodded a little bit. And and, you know, my whole first book is about growing up on Long Island. And she said, I think you might need to write about the suburbs a little. And, and it turned out she was very right. And so what happened was I wound up finishing this book when I was pandemic stuck in mm. the suburbs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and it was, it was a really amazing exercise to, you know, so much of my book is about landscape. And there was no escape from this particular landscape that all I wanted to do was escape from, even if it meant getting to the North Pole for a year. Yeah, right. That's <laughs> kind of funny now. But pretty quickly on, we we changed gears. We knew we were going to end in the in the suburbs, and home fires came, and that does begin in the suburbs. You know, a, a narrator, whether it's across the course of an essay or a memoir, needs to change and. My fundamental change while writing this book, I think, was really understanding the suburbs as very different than what I'd taken them to be. And yet at the same time, kind of returning to my origin of thinking about them and growing up there, there is precarity, but there is safety and there is boredom and sterileness, sterility, but there's still beauty. And that really helped cohere the book. And once I understood that there were these three particular city, country, suburbs, it was easier to conceive of these three sections as buckets. And rather than, you know, when I'm teaching writing, a lot of my students will start a section with a date or a place. And I always ask them to not lean too heavily on that. And to make sure that if a reader is reading the work, even if they miss that marker or skip that subhead, that they can still feel it in the work. And I wanted to do something similar in cueing the reader that, all right, we're switching places. And so that's kind of where instead of subheads or sections, I wanted to put in the still lifes where there are three flash nonfiction pieces or lyric essays, depending on what you believe in um, <laughs> that uh, you, that are are separating these sections. And so for me, it's exactly as you described it. Here are the two kind of ending beginning pieces where home fires is why we're reading, why are we here setting us on this journey? And then it delivers us into the city, but really into the intrepid and and the, the foundation of everything that comes after. And then we've got these three sort of buckets 
I imagine them almost as a triangle where that little flash nonfiction piece is at the top and everything else, all the other essays sit below it. And it's almost like a photo book. I wanted those flash pieces to be purely sensory, to let the reader sink into where we are, remind them it's a different place. And I think so much of identity is wrapped up into where we are, what space we're inhabiting, who is around us. And I wanted that to be almost like a set change or a curtain draw at a play and allow the reader to clear their mind and move on to the next place because it was so different in my mind. The other thing that you did, and I I can't tell if I'm totally consistent in this. So the first essay, Home Fires, where we're kind of in your new life, your post-separation life, is in present tense. And it felt like the essays in the marriage were in past tense and the essays after the split were in present tense, which I also thought was just such an elegant move to kind of set us in time and mentality, right? Present tense has such a forward, optimistic, we're in the moment. And past tense has this sort of frozen in amber, this is what was (laughs) feel to me. So I, I love that choice as well. Oh, thank you. Yeah. A lot of this book is also just dealing with or attempting to deal with nostalgia and its relationship to memory really head on and to try and cue that in the writing and with style and structure. And so I agree that tense is certainly one way to to play with that. And we should say that leaving isn't simply leaving a marriage. I mean, leaving is, is such a bigger concept, which makes this such a universal read for everybody. It's leaving a job, it's leaving a life, it's leaving a city. So yeah, I, you know, that I I feel like in lesser hands, this would be a memoir about divorce, but it's not right. It's you, you elevated it to a higher level. I hope so. I wanted to me, that is the, was the litmus test in terms of the question you asked earlier, how to decide what essays make it. And each essay to me had some element of leaving. And you're right. Some of them have nothing to do about leaving a relationship or leaving a marriage. And it's the leaving, the active part, the never endingness of it, the never knowing was that the right thing. (laughs) All of those things wrapped up into the moment that it occurs to you, I might need to leave. And again, exactly a job, a place, a friendship. And then, oh my gosh, I'm going to say this out loud, which results in accountability then. This is making it real. And then after that, it's making actual concrete plans and moving that forward. And a lot of people try to leave many things and do not because it's really difficult. And I think there's so many reasons and, and safety is another thread throughout this book or the uh, illusion of <laughs> safety. Right, right. <laughs> and as humans, we like to convince ourselves. I mean, ultimately we are animals and sometimes it seems safer to just be still. And in fact, jumping might be the safest thing. We'll be back with more from Kelly McMasters and the leaving season in just a moment. You're listening to Writers on Writing. 
Another reminder to check out our Patreon page. If you're liking the show, if you've learned any tips that have inched you closer to publication, if you enjoy these behind-the-scenes discussions of how these books get made, this is your chance to support the show. Any amount helps us out. Visit patreon.com slash writers on writing. Let's get back to it with Kelly McMasters talking about the leaving season. Well, let's dissect a couple of these. We talked quite a bit about the bookshop. Maybe before we get to that one, we talk a little bit about there's an essay that's probably a quarter of the way through the book called The Ghost in the Hills. And for some reason, I was hearkening back to Joanne Beard's The Fourth State of Matter when I was reading some of these essays, because they're about so many things. Right? There's so much going on. And as you're talking, you know, just in our conversation today, you're speaking in such gorgeous metaphor and analogy. And that's what all of these essays do. And this essay, I, I feel like, does that particularly well. There's this concept of heterotopias, which I'd never encountered before, that as now I'm totally obsessed by. But there's a lot in this essay going on in terms of place and metaphor and characters and all of that. So I thought maybe we could just spend some time unpacking this one. So maybe you introduce it sort of generally, and then we can spin it back to its origins and and pull it apart a little bit. But talk a little bit about the essay in general, and then we'll, we'll go from there. Sure. So it's funny, this, this was the trouble child of the collection and it's called the ghosts in the hills. And for a long time, the book itself was called the ghosts in the hills. I think we made the right choice in calling it the leaving season, but this essay in particular just has a lot of special meaning to me. And I, and I wrestled it like an alligator for so long. And I'm still not certain who came out on top, but in short, it's very landscape based, like, like many of these. And I wanted to introduce this landscape in a way that both paid homage to where we were while also allowing my point of view as an outsider to be honest and also expansive. That's my hope. I think there's a glamour in uh, both a glamour and a sort of reductive trap that happens when people, particularly from the city, drive, take a country drive, right? And, uh, and pass a bucolic farm and imagine what life there must be like. And then there's the reality. And I think we do that a lot too when especially folks in the city, the pandemic was prime time for this, would would escape, right? People use the word escape to the country because, you know, having grown up in a service town to the Hamptons, there's a dividing line to the townies. And I'm using that word because I grew up as a townie. Um, <laughs> and so it's not a pejorative to me. It's a banner of pride. And then there are the outsiders who like to think that they are inside mm -hmm. and, and the heterotopia aspect felt so perfect to introduce in this essay and it came late. So this essay had been in a few different forms, but essentially what I wanted to, to show was my experience kind of crossing over from part-timer to full-timer, not saying that I ever made it to local because that would be impossible, even if I 
lived for a hundred years there, but just another crossing over that happens is when you're surrounded by such natural beauty, there's also a level of brutality that seeps in that you may not even notice. And in this particular case, and I don't think it's spoiling anything to share it. I just finished Rebecca Mackay's amazing, I have questions for you. Mm, yeah. Yes. <laughs> This, so this essay is not meant to be a suspense or a thriller essay, but <laughs> right. there is a murder-suicide that sort of activates the community, but not in the way one might expect. And so when your neighbors are literally chopping each other up and burning them in a, in a barrel or someone else is stringing a bobcat up in a tree just to look at it and see how it decomposes. And, and we're, you know, I in particular love taking the butane torch to the apple trees when the tent caterpillars came and just hearing them sizzle, right? There's this, this way that landscape has of claiming us. And so the ghosts in the hills are, are sort of these layers of heterotopia, belonging, rules and customs, figuring out who belongs, whose story, whose stories get told and ultimately what happens when the story is not at all what you thought. It's so funny you brought up the murder suicide because I actually forgot about that. And I was just thinking about a flag. Yes. I mean, this, this idea of, I mean, as we've alluded to all the way through place is so potent in all of these, but I was also thinking of just like the politics of place and, and how shape-shifty you have to be to live in the city versus live in the country. And if you, if you don't fit in your, you know, your life is going to be very rough and you have to rely on these people. I mean, they are what nobody's coming for you, as you point out in one of these essays, <laughs> if you're in trouble, you're in you're out there alone, man. Yep. So yeah. yes. Okay. So let, let's kind of unwind this then. So the original, so the heterotopia, which I would have assumed was sort of the organizing principle that you started with actually came at the very end. Mm -hmm. So what in this came at the beginning? <laughs> okay. So I think that the opening of Truman Capote's In Cold Blood is one of the most beautiful pages ever written. <laughs> and it has captured me for many years. So this started initially as an essay that I pitched as a book, not review, but you know, the millions who I love the millions and, and they do a lot of book essays. So essays based on rereadings or not necessarily newly published books. And so I, I thought it would be really interesting there was actually the initial reason for this essay didn't even make it in in the end. But when I was living there, there was this, this manhunt for a guy who had been a sniper at a police station up there. And it was in our neighborhood and people came from all over for this manhunt and it, the schools closed and, you know, you'd go to the corner store and everybody was talking about it and that everyone had their guns out and they were ready for him and they're going to go search for him in the, in the woods. And he eluded them for so long mm. and it was fascinating. It was terrifying, but it was also fascinating to me that you just don't know what's in the woods. Yeah. And <laughs> I spent many years, you know, surrounded by acres and acres and acres. And there was always this balance between there, there was some fear, some feeling of fear. And it was a mix between being afraid, you know, if I would have to walk from 
my house to the barn at night, for example. It's pitch black out there. There's no, no city nearby for light pollution. And I didn't know if I was more afraid of a person in the woods or the animals. And I think that's part of the grappling here. And one evening I was driving home and I turned and there was this little sweet little cemetery near a few dirt roads back from our house. And there were these glowy lights and what something I loved about that. And this is how it opens is deer loved to sort of bed down on the, on the graves. Mm. And if you could catch it at the right time, you could still see them and their eyes would, would glow in your headlamps, but these were not eyes. And I didn't understand what they were. And there were these little glowy orbs in the, in the corners of the cemetery that just seemed to appear. And so, like you said, when, when you have a question, when you need something, you go to this place, to the barn on the corner, because there's no cell service. This was, you know, before Wi-Fi. we were on dial up at that point, (laughs) (laughs) you know, if you wanted to find somebody, you just, we were miles. It's hard to really explain to friends now in the suburbs or then in the city, how far out we had to drive 20 to 30 minutes if we needed milk or baby Tylenol. 30 minutes is a long time. And so you go to the barn and if you need something, chances are they have it or they have the answer. And so I I brought this question to them. I said, I think I'm seeing ghosts in the, in the graveyard. And, you know, they quickly dispelled that and told me what, what it actually was. And so, so there was certainly this idea of death with the graveyard and, and heterotopia in terms of belonging and, and this idea of threat but the idea of where my place was in it, where I assumed my place was in it, I think the reason this started as an essay about Truman Capote and In Cold Blood is because I love that book because he comes in, you know, oh, I'm an impartial observer and I'm a journalist and I'm writing a story and then, oh my gosh, I am so much more implicated in this narrative than I realized. And that mm. was exactly what happened with me. So I, I wanted to, to really use his book in that way and play with, with what it means to be inside, outside, when you think you're outside, but you're actually inside and you don't want to be <laughs> all of those. Right. Things. <laughs> what sort of distance, time or space do you need to understand <laughs> what's going on in a situation adequately to, to write about it? I'm, I'm slow. Uh, I'm very slow writer. I'm a slow thinker. I have learned that my essays, sometimes they come out very quickly and I know they're, they're almost, you know, I, I, I can almost dream them first and then I write into them. I love those when that happens. It's very rare. And this one in particular took so many years because I couldn't quite find why I was writing it. I knew it was, it wanted to be something. I knew it wanted to be an essay and I had a lot of the, the points in place, but it was only when I found that heterotopia idea that I was able to really understand what I was trying to say and then go back to the beginning and say it. You have a great TEDx talk that I'll link to in the show notes, but you were talking in there about, I think it was in there, about not believing in writer's block, but believing in voice block. 
and the questions that you have to interrogate yourself of, you know, what is your biggest lie? What is your hardest truth? And I was wondering if that played any role in this essay, because you would have to, I would think, lie to yourself a little bit about how implicated you are in a situation and how far you've let yourself slide from your morals to fit into a situation. And at what point you did that? Yes. Somebody just recently wrote about that TEDx in their Substack, and I only met her years later. I didn't know her as a student when I was at FNM. And it reminded me that I need to to stay true to that. <laughs> um, it was nice to, to be reminded of that idea and to put each essay to that litmus test of, am I being honest here as a narrator? And if I'm going to put somebody else on the page, I have to use the same, if I'm going to put someone else on the page and, and show all of their beauty and brutality, I have to do the same for myself. It's only fair. And at first pass, because we're not used to doing that as humans for ourselves, you know, it's probably not enough. And so the scariest thing for most people, and for me certainly is vulnerability and and I think that's where a lot of writer's block or vo- writer's voice block uh, comes from yeah. is that fear of being truly vulnerable on the page. And that doesn't mean confessional. That's different uh, because you can be confessional confessional without being vulnerable and you can be certainly be vulnerable without being confessional. And I think it's just a certain layer of being willing to see and be truthful about fear. And I think this is actually a very, this essay is actually a very good example. It was only when I got that scene down of myself standing under that flag and the flag in question has a giant swastika on it that I had been standing under for years and I didn't see it. And then I saw it. And then I had to deal with the fact that I had been standing under it for so long. And whatever I did after would never change that fact. And that's really hard to wrestle with. Um, I loved these men. And I think partially what makes a lot of it easier to write in terms of your time question to write and to consider is that sadly they are pretty much with almost without exception all dead yeah. and i think that is both easier but also a little unfair for them right because i can't call them up and say what the hell were you thinking mm-hmm. and let them defend themselves which for me i also don't know that i would want to know their answer I'm so glad you brought that up because I was curious about that, the ethics of writing about living people versus the ethics of writing about the dead. And it's funny you say that because I was actually thinking the opposite. I was thinking, oh, maybe once somebody dies, all bets are off and you can write about them easier. But I hadn't even thought about that idea of them not being around to defend themselves or just share their side of the story or something. But we did have a question from a listener that came in about the ethics of writing, writing about the living and, you know, particularly you write about your children in here quite a bit and what you had to wrestle with in that regard. And and are there lines you draw for yourself or yeah, talk about that. So many lines. I, I recently had a piece in Lit Hub talking a lot about this and 
I was, I very selfishly put together a panel at AWP in Seattle last year or earlier this year with some of my favorite writers who do this because I wanted to ask them, <laughs> how, how do you do it? Because I hadn't, my book hadn't published yet. And so, and I hadn't hit the final point of no return on pulling some of the pages back that I was waffling on. And so I was able to sit down with, you know, incredible writers like Sonora Jaw, who is just out of this world, brilliant and Rebecca Wolf and, and Jane Wong and Joanna Rakoff, who are all just so brave and in different ways and dealing with different types of secrets and different types of ethics within their work. And it didn't give me the, <laughs> the guide rails that I'd hoped I would walk away from that conversation. <laughs> right. That would be too easy, but it helped me understand how to read my own work and how to make my own decisions on the page. And I think between those conversations and with other, you know, first readers, what I understood, I, I did have certain lines where what made me laugh is when usually people's first question is, but what if your kids read it? Right. And, you know, they've, they've come to the events with me. They, they have copies of the book. Uh, they're too young. I don't, they have, unless there are dragons involved, they're not going to read it. Right <laughs> they right. really, they could care less, but I do know that one day they might read it and they also might choose to never read it. And, and so I have both of those possibilities in my mind. And I'm, and so for me, the most important part is making space that they can understand that this is my story, but not the story, that they have all of the space in the world to explore and understand and make and remake their own story and their own version of this, because it will be very different than mine. Their experiences will be completely separate and completely different. And I celebrate that. And I want their bodies to be protected on the page. But something else I wrote about in that essay for LitHub was going to see Maggie Smith read from her new memoir, which has been lauded as a divorce memoir. So even though it sounds sometimes like a dirty word, I think, you know, she does a beautiful job of turning that on its head. And, and she said, you know, I spend so much more time parenting than I do writing. It wouldn't feel true to exclude them from the page. And so much of this book is about mothering. Yes. That if they weren't there, <laughs> yes, what's the point? <laughs> so, so I think, you know, I was very careful to never go into their heads or assume anything. And I hope anyway, and I full, I know full well that later in our lives together, they may have lots of questions, but everything I wrote about, I am, I've either spoken to them about, or I'm ready to speak to them about. And you use no names, you use no names of your husband or your children. That's, exactly. that's. I wanted to sneak in one other piece of advice I read from you, or you were relaying other advice you got that I thought was really great in the revision process, which is during your revision process, you should imagine your work on a stage and populate it that way. You know, does it have a setting and what can your audience see? And kind of, if you can visualize it that way, because not all of us are visual writers, you had the benefit of living in a very visual house because I know your husband was an, or is an artist, um, ex-husband was an artist. So maybe you're tuned towards 
visuals, but I, I thought that was a really nice piece of advice for those of us who don't think that way to imagine our work up on a stage and, and what the stage would look like or in a movie, you know, what the setting looks like. So, cause you're so great at setting. I thought that was, that was good. Thank you. And, and I will say that that advice came from Sam Friedman, who was a mentor and is a mentor and professor at Columbia Journalism School. And I, I took his class and taught with him for many years in the book seminar. And he is such a theater nerd. And he his focus is narrative nonfiction, though he has written a memoir about his mother. And scene setting is so important in nonfiction. And I think character and scene and setting your scene on a, on a stage, the possibilities are endless. You may want to have a black box stage where you only have the light shining on the narrator or on the person speaking, right? The one actor solitary with nothing else behind them. That may be what you're going for, but then you need to make sure that's your goal <laughs> and do that intentionally. Um, but so what I notice in um, certainly a lot of student writing is that they do that without it's in their mind, but they forget sometimes to get it on the page for the reader and the reader only knows what we tell them. And I will also say that I, while I'd like to think that I'm a visual person, I think one thing I certainly learned from my ex-husband is the ability to see and really see. And this is similar to that idea of the voice block of understanding what you're actually afraid of, what your hard truths are, is, you know, you think you think you see something, but we see so little in our day-to-day -day lives. And, and what I write about is mostly domestic, small. I'm not writing about giant, dramatic flares usually. I love writing small, writing the daily, uh, writing the domestic. And, and you have to really practice seeing because when you're writing about something you do every day, caring for children or washing the dishes, right? You stop seeing it. And sometimes you stop seeing them. And so that practice is really important in order to then put that on the stage and make sure you're showing it to someone else, but you have to see it first. Uh, we didn't even get to talk about all of the living as a writer. The other thing I want to say about this book for writers is it really shows you what it's like to live day to day economically as a writer and how much you have to be sending out, how much you have to be pitching, you know, just cobbling together, as you say, this $125 column, how many of those it takes to economically support your life, how much you have to teach. So for the writers in here, there's a really nice, I don't know if it's nice, but a, a, a practical ribbon that runs through this book about what it, what it takes to live as artists. Your ex-husband was an artist, you are an artist. If there's advice you can leave us with in that regard, just kind of making your, your life as an artist and as a writer, that'd be a nice note to end on. Thank you for bringing that up because the economics is really important to me. My first book dealt a lot with poverty and sort of blue collar pride and the ways that worth and or human worth is or is not valued, especially politically or in science, right? Um, and again, in, in this book, I think similarly, poverty and fear, and whether that be, you know, from a farmer or an artist, 
money is so is so important and such a driving factor for so many of our decisions. And for me, I always come at it pretty pragmatically. You know, I don't have a, let's see, what's the best way to say this? Um, I had a, a professor in grad school who said, if you really want to be a writer, there's only one thing you need to do, and that's marry a banker. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to disagree with that advice, but that's not how I live my life. I wanted to figure out a way to feed my family and feed my soul, which sounds very cheesy, but I need to write. And I write best when it's my job. And from the beginning of our conversation, when I said the the feeling of permission that comes in when you have a deadline and a paycheck, regardless of the amount, really changes the stakes. And it feels serious and it changes who I am as a writer when I show up to the page. And I will say, I cut my teeth on, you know, little, it, actually, I was going to say village newspapers. It was called The Villager uh, in New York. <laughs> and, you know, I couldn't believe that uh, when I pitched, you know, I pitched something small first and then I pitched something much, much larger. And uh, the editor was like, go for it. I can't pay you anymore for a larger piece than a smaller piece, but if you want to keep writing, go for it. And, you know, that's how I learned how to write. And so it wasn't the money. It wasn't that, oh, I was making more money for something larger. It's simply, there's, there's the writing that we do in our journals, which is incredibly important. The writing we do, you know, the, the sort of puddles that we're, we're jumping in and, and, and pushing around as we work in revision land. And then there's the work that goes out. And I think all three are very important. And some essays never see the light of day, and that's okay. But I think depending on your circumstances, writing as a job, anybody can be a writer, anybody can write, but writing as a job lends a credibility for yourself. And and I think especially as a mother, especially as a woman who does have six other jobs, that is a really good reminder that it's not that I want to carve out this time, I need to, and I owe it to the work. And that makes the work central. And I think that is something that I wish I learned how to do much, much earlier. That's really another theme in the book, sort of the women and economics of art and all of that. So yeah, when people pick up this book, they will see all of this because there's there's so many obviously topics in here. This is wonderful. <laughs> Kelly McMasters, I wish we had like a thousand more years. This, this is so much fun. <laughs> so much fun to talk to you. Oh, thank you. This was a great conversation. Thank you so much. That was Kelly McMasters. The book is The Leaving Season. It's out and available now. In addition to our Patreon page, you can always visit our websites. Barbara's is penonfire.com. Mine is mariestone.com. You can always subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, and Stitcher. As always, our fantastic music and sound editing was provided by Travis Barrett. You can find him at travisbarrett.mykajabi.com. That's all the time we have for this week. Tune in next week. Thanks so much for joining me. Have a great day.